Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder center in Seattle. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. I'm your host, Carter Umhau, a therapist at Opal, an artist, and a writer. Today, Opal co-founder and head of our sport and exercise program, Kara Bazzi, is speaking to former pro football player Patrick Deveni. Patrick struggled with an eating disorder before and during his professional career, but finally began to seek help when he stepped away from football. Patrick is actually going to be joining us for the next two episodes of The Appetite, and today he's going to be focusing on sharing a little bit of his story. His story, of course, highlights the particularity of what it's like to struggle with food and body issues as a man and as an athlete. We are really excited to have you as a guest today on our podcast. Maybe you could give us a brief introduction of who you are. Hi, I'm Patrick Deveni. Yeah, absolutely. First and foremost, thank you very much for the opportunity and huge fan of everything you guys are up to. And I guess to kind of dive in, I played football at the University of Colorado, had a brief cup of coffee up with the Seattle Seahawks. In about around 2010, have since kind of transitioned into the now what phase of life post-athletic career have found myself in a passion project as far as advocacy work for raising awareness for males with eating disorders, primarily speak about athletes, kind of the journey of how that naturally leads to disordered eating, the unfair kind of consequences post-athletic career. I have a day job in commercial real estate, but this has definitely been a huge priority of mine. Very cool. I'm very excited about your passion project and what you're doing in the world, really. Why don't you start by sharing and giving some context about your story and how you got to where you are today with this passion project? A lot of people ask me when I developed an eating disorder. And I would say for most athletes, it's pretty difficult to pinpoint exact time and a place. And with sports, that's a great job of disguising eating disorders. I think it's very commonplace for disordered eating. There's so much activity involved that it's hard to really diagnose. Basically what happened was around the sophomore, junior year of my college experience, I really started to kind of demonize foods, categorize them as good versus bad. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately kind of became the beginning of the end, seeing things and trying to punish myself for eating certain foods or not eating certain foods, over-exercising. When I had an opportunity to go to the Seahawks, that ultimately led to a um, tryout and pro day for the NFL scouts. You really push your body to the extreme. And I mean that from the standpoint of dietary wise and also working out. You really need to show up. There's a pressure to show up looking like Thor or some action hero because you really do have millions of dollars on the line if you can impress somebody and get an opportunity on a team. When the playing career was done, I actually ruptured a tendon in my wrist, got sent home and woke up on a Monday with nowhere to be, no one to report to, no mandatory lifts, no Mm -hmm. team meetings. I kind of found myself in a position of the only thing that I could control was my physique, how much I worked out. That was pretty much my identity. I thought that Mm -hmm. transition post-athletics would be very, very easy. I had great grades in college, knew a lot of people. The uh, alumni network was fantastic, but at the end of the day, Trying to find something that I was as passionate about football um, ultimately became very, very difficult. Simultaneously, I was living in Southern California, and my best friends were still playing in the NFL and had had tremendous opportunities. So I really found myself in a kind of a comparison mode Mm. when I wasn't transitioning with a lot of kids that were 
graduating from school who were facing the entry-level job positions and those demands. I was surrounded by a bunch of guys that were making millions of dollars, had the fame, had the glory. Granted, they were under a tremendous amount of stress, but day in and day out, I was studying for the LSATs and working at a restaurant while they were working out and doing everything that I wanted to be doing. That was really, really difficult. So the only way I could find value in myself was trying to compete and show up with a better body. That image of myself became a very, very high-pressure game, ultimately led to I pretty much fell into every single diet trap that you can imagine. I know more about the diet fats just based on personal experience or what I call kind of bro science. I think there's very little science involved in these. You get caught up in them. I found myself with the whole paleo meets intermittent fasting meets keto meets everything across the sun really began to run my life. So over about a two or three year period, I was achieving a great physique. However, I started to lose all energy, all libido, testosterone, anything that you would never want started to really feel the effects. However, I had a great looking body, kind of the only thing that mattered to me. So then when I really started to kind of find myself in a position of bringing, I was very much on a macro-based plan, so I would find myself at dinners bringing chicken breasts that I had weighed out mm. and being at a restaurant and just ordering a salad because I couldn't really control what was on the menu, but then pulling out my own chicken breasts because I knew I was getting my proteins. And it really started to dictate my life. Mm -hmm. Pretty embarrassing. A lot of people would call me out for it, but that's all I knew. And I, at the end of the day, if I was under or over a certain calorie amount, it was really detrimental to my mental health. I had what I kind of saw myself as extreme willpower mm -hmm. for about five years until about 2015. So at that point, really you weren't seeing it as a problem. You were seeing yourself as successful with your willpower. 100%. Yeah. It was, I because I was not achieving success financially or career-wise or any of that kind of stuff. I The only thing I mean, I was at the gym at 4 a.m. with the whole hashtag sweat equity, wearing 27 <laughs> layers, intense workouts, and everybody saw me as just so structured quote unquote, they looked up to me from my work ethic in the gym. Right. Although looking back, it was terrible. In 2015, my mom passed away unexpectedly. And that's when things really kind of took a turn for a worse. And I, I really started to engage in binge eating and bulimia exercise induced and really started to miss out on life. I, I did not leave my house because I was so afraid. The environment that I couldn't control, I would be in conversation the entire time I was thinking about food. So we could mm -hmm. be talking about life, goals and vision and blah, blah, blah. But the whole time I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat later on that day or any other <laughs> topic mm -hmm. uh, revolved around food. It really controlled my life. At the same time, I still did not know it was an issue. I just knew, I started to kind of feel like I was just going crazy in my head and never even considered eating disorder as an actual thing. I know I was very depressed, isolated anxiety, you name it, suicidal thoughts, all the above, but I didn't know there was something that I was actually triggering this or an underlying effect. Randomly came across a podcast that was regarding eating disorders in the physique world, really just sat there nodding my head and thinking everything they're discussing right now is, is truly my life. And it's interesting because I feel like had I heard that maybe three, four, five months earlier, I don't know if I would have been in a place to be so receptive, but I had truly hit rock bottom. And I reached out to the therapist that was on the podcast. She couldn't really help me because I wasn't even in the state, let alone in the country. She sent me a bunch of information on eating disorders. 
started to realize that most of the marketing and information regarding eating disorders revolved around 60-pound white female with amenorrhea, and I didn't have any of those. It was really hard to be like, wait a second, I feel like I can relate to this diagnosis. I'm not any of this. So that's ultimately what leads to kind of the latter part of this story of my advocacy work. Started to dive in, and I ended up doing 24 weeks of outpatient therapy trying to establish normalized eating patterns and really kind of redefine my relationship with food, address some of the underlying mental health issues mm-hmm. uh, that was driving the eating disorder. That whole experience has led to opportunities to speak out and really letting other male, males know that they're not alone. When I could finally hang my hat on a diagnosis, it was extremely relieving. However, it was the start of a very intense journey, but I think there's a huge awareness factor that needs to be raised, what eating disorders are, and not make it feel like such a giant elephant in the room when you have these conversations. Sure. One of the things that stands out to me in your story is how long it took to see this as a see this as an issue, how eating disorders get disguised in sport, how you were actually revered for post-football career um, in the way that you were working out and like you said, the the willpower and and not recognizing that as an issue for many years. I don't know if you'd want to speak more about about that, about how things get disguised in the athletic context, or maybe possibly with males um, males in athletics. I think I would start to define that. I would start at a very basic level. To this day, I still find working out extremely beneficial for my own overall well being, and I'm very passionate about it and love it. And I think there's a a fine line as to what can be triggering and what cannot. Even just in the gym today, and people still come up to me and it's natural. I'm still there in the mornings before work and whatnot. And everyone will come up to me and be like, dude, what's your program? What do you want? What's your diet? <laughs> How do you respond to that? that? I tend to be very outgoing, hopefully a joyful person. But I come across in the gym a lot of times, hat on, headphones on, picking and choosing conversations because they can be very willpower driven and mm-hmm. the focus and kind of a success the Dwayne Johnson get in the gym and grind 24 <laughs> hours a day and if you're not then you're weak mm-hmm. and all this stuff as opposed to finding balance I think it's very uncommon in the world today especially for males that if you're like oh I missed the gym today it's not a big deal I'll get it tomorrow as opposed to like no it doesn't matter what it takes get to the gym or eat a certain way. And, and I always say people ask me the prevalence of eating disorders and I, or dis, at least disordered eating. And I think there's a huge differentiator there. Go stand by the dumbbell rack at a 24 hour fitness for five minutes and you'll hear somebody talk about they're eliminating some sort of food, some sort of exercise, some sort of something truly is the beginning of the end. And mm-hmm. it's a very slippery slope at that point. So you take that at the basic level, males in general, I you're standing at the grocery store line and you look up and at checkout and there's the men's health fitness, the, the article on the front page is lose seven pounds in three days and get a six pack by eating pizza. It creates a very false mentality of what's realistic and what should be a healthy journey. Um, all of a sudden we'll get pushed to the extremes. Right. And I think to answer your question at, at an elite level, you have money on the line, you have personas that people need to live up to and, and, people trying to prove their worth and they will go to extremes to be the hardest worker in the room and and go to rigid diets and all this kind of stuff to achieve success. Kind of the nature of the beast for elite athletics. However, it is a very, very slippery slope, especially Mm -hmm. when players are done playing, not to mention during 
and I say this all the time, I truly believe at the elite level, and I'm sure somebody someday will call me out on this and point to an outlier. I would say 100% of elite athletes have some form of disordered eating from the standpoint of how they classify foods. It's just at a very basic level mm-hmm. and very, very hard to raise the awareness around that because everybody's doing it. So what would you, I'm thinking of what would you want to say to either somebody who's in kind of elite athletics or even at your gym? Is there, do you find yourself in advocacy work kind of on the day-to-day basis while you're at the gym? Or do I you, do. or is that too much for you to do it when you're on your personal, I don't know, what's that like, I guess? In all fairness, I'll admit that if I'm at the gym and I will try to pull somebody aside, like after my workout, my message is always about trying to find the balance, allowing yourself any sort of food, like food is absolutely delicious and demonizing it for an extra percent of body fat is not worth it. And there's so much science out there now showing, you know, lowest body fat doesn't always achieve the best performance. Going to those extremes is so detrimental. And I lived that. I lived Mm -hmm. that lifestyle where I had zero energy, yet I found myself in a position of every day somebody telling me how amazing I looked, but on the inside, it's not about how you can't judge a book by its cover. I was suffering mentally and physically despite how I looked. And that was probably my hardest part of recovery during those 24 weeks. I would go to my therapist. I was in no position to have a job. I didn't have the mental bandwidth. And everybody would ask me, you know, what are you up to? And I would spend 99% of my time trying to convince people that I had an issue, that I did have Mm -hmm. a eating disorder. And no one believed it because they just saw me as, I mean, you look at me on paper. And at the time, I think I was a lean 240 pounds. But it was a very vicious cycle that (laughs) needed a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I think that's the hardest part is, you're consistently in an uphill battle of trying to change an image and change um, stereotypes around eating disorders. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, all the assumptions people would make just by looking at somebody's appearance. No question. Mm-hmm. And I, I deal with that a lot in, in the sports world now, talking to team physicians and doctors that eating disorders are, I think, I feel like they're looked over at the elite levels unless somebody is at the extremes. If mm-hmm. they're extremely overweight or extremely underweight, they just kind of brush it off and like, oh no, they're fine. Look at them. They're good. When Mm -hmm. instead it's less about how they look, it's their mental state, also internally, physically what's happening. But I think a lot of those markers are hard to test unless you go about it appropriately. I'm curious if you've gotten any traction by sharing your story in the athletic department. For sure. I've, I've had After I've done speaking engagements, I've had a lot of teams reach out to me to address, especially how to raise awareness, true assessments for males. Mm -hmm. I think males are at a disadvantage just up front from the standpoint of don't suffer from amenorrhea. And for those that don't know, it's, you know, clinical case. I'm sure you could dive into it more than I can. I'm not a I'm not a physician or a doctor Mm -hmm. or clinician. At the end of the day, I don't lose a period because I'm too low on body fat. All of the tell signs, I, I joke. I mean, I remember the cliche kind of testing when I played was like, do you feel like you're suffering from an eating disorder? And of course I would say, no, there was no way I'm going to dive into that. And then two, you ask a 20 year old now, you know, how is your testosterone? I'd come in saying I'm on top of the world type of scenario, although it may be absolutely terrible and have zero energy and all the effects teams and physicians have started reaching out and trying to change the message um, and change how it's being perceived delivered to males. I think you look at it in general, if you type in males with ED on Google, you will get five to six pages of males with erectile dysfunction. 
that's a huge hurdle. It's a real thing that if I'm a male and luckily I was able to look past that because I'd hit rock bottom. But if I'm just curious, if I'm suffering from something and I type that in, I'm out. Yeah. Like I'm not, not seeing any representation. Any yeah. Nothing. I'm like, okay, so I, I'm good. Like I'm not even going to click on this. I'm afraid someone's going to look at my history mm. on Google search and be like, whoa, what's this guy up to? Teams have reached out, but I still think fundamentally when I go in and speak to a lot of teams and start to try to raise awareness about what their their current athletes may be going through, this whole diagnosis of eating disorders, I think it needs to be noted that most of these coaches, doctors and physicians, however you look at it, especially the coaches, were all ex-athletes. There's very little coaches out there that didn't play at some level. And what that means is when I come in there and I kind of start talking about their players, I'm also taking a shot at them indirectly. So I'm not meeting teams at zero. I'm meeting them at negative 500 because now a coach needs to look at himself and be like, wow, am I actually suffering from an eating disorder? In most cases, they are. Mm-hmm. At least some form of disordered eating. It's a very uphill battle, but one that I actually don't mind being in because I don't have skin in the game. I don't, I'm not afraid of losing playing time anymore. That's gone and passed. I like being involved in that world, but it is. It's a very uphill battle because mm-hmm. until... People can understand the effects. A lot of people aren't open to really looking into it. I'm just sitting here. I'm just so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work. And I'm connecting to it myself as as an area of passion for me as well. And so, and knowing how hard it is to change these systems, to change, to make some lasting and sustainable change within the sport world. I think one thing that when we talked earlier that stood out to me too is the language barriers is another hurdle between the sport world and the treatment world of eating disorder treatment. Uh, and I'm curious if you want to speak about that of, of the language, the language piece and the mismatch. So I've referenced amenorrhea and this is actually a, a funny story from the standpoint of I've been involved in this world. I've gone to a tremendous amount of conferences at this point. Most of these conferences I go to are very, very science driven. Luckily, I have a background in what I refer to as bro science. So at some <laughs> form of fashion, I understand some of the language, although my actual science can be flawed. I can kind of dissect it. And I was sitting in a conference with one of my like peers and mentors and was listening to a very highly acclaimed doctor talk about eating disorders and athletes. For the first 30 minutes, they kept referring to amenorrhea this was in the last six months. And I literally, after about 30 minutes, turned to the, uh, my mentor next to me and was like, what is amenorrhea? Like, I'm, I'm trying to type it in online. I'm spelling it wrong. It's sending me Bible verses. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> and, and she turned to me. She goes, oh, it's when you lose your period. And I was like, why didn't you say so? Like, why hasn't anybody said that for the first 30 minutes? Because I have no idea what's happened. But it's, it's very much... The medical field in and of itself relies on that type of language when as an athlete that has no idea that they even have an issue, I think a lot of the language can be lost and the, and the impact behind it will be lost just out of the gate science behind it mm-hmm. and the actual terminology being used. Mm-hmm. So true. I also remember you saying too about the athlete talk versus therapist talk of therapists using more woo-woo language, not really speaking quite to the athlete's way of of understanding the world through goals and drive and direct language. Again, I think the nature of the beast athletes are 
especially once you hit the call, even in high school, but especially in college and professional levels, you're used to being told where to be, what to do. You're told to jump and, and how high to jump and when to jump. And, and everything is laid out for you because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they just want you there to perform. What that also means, though, is still to this day, if there's any sort of gray area in my life, if it's not clearly defined as black and white, good versus bad, any of that kind of stuff, I I don't do well. I am totally a fish out of water when it comes to gray area. So a lot of what I see in the material and especially recovery material, conceptual ideas addressing eating disorders are very much with checking in with yourself. Where, do you, where are you currently at? And all this stuff that is, is truly great and tremendous. And now that I'm seeing the benefits of it, especially out of the gates, if an athlete is not told, like, look, we need to address and getting a structured, balanced diet, and this is how we're going to do it, not eat when you're hungry. It's like, what does that mean? I've, I'm always hungry. Science behind that, but there's also athletes are praised for how much they can eat. Athlete doesn't have the guidelines in the recovery side of things, especially males in general. It's a very challenging recovery process because you just get lost in the weeds. I need to be told where to go and what to do. And if I'm not, then good luck. I'll I'll be stranded here forever. Right. I think that's that's an important point to address of just even the cultural, it's a cultural competency of a subpopulation of athletes and males I think for the treatment world to be kind of considering that of how do we serve that population in in a particular way that is going to be translated uh, more appropriately. Absolutely. I mean, and even to that point, I think for anybody listening to, I mean, it took me, I was fortunate from the standpoint of when I met with the therapist that I did the initial 24 weeks with, we hit it off out the gates and it was fantastic. Finding a uh, practitioner could very much be like dating. I mean, and that's okay. I, when I came to Denver, I had to search around and it took me a few times. I did not relate to some of the concepts and the, and the way. And it's not like it was right or wrong. It's just I needed to find somebody that could speak my language. It took a little bit. And that's and again, that's fine. That should be part of the process. You really should find somebody that you can sit down and open up to and have great conversations with and, and be led and if you're not getting that, then to keep searching, because I think that was probably my biggest challenge out of the gates when I got to Denver, where I was like, okay, well, I didn't relate to her. I'm out. I don't want to do this, this kind of mentality. But once I did find it, it was totally worth it. It's not always easy, but it's definitely achievable. Um, so, Patrick, uh, what what would you say were stereotypes you had to overcome um, as a male in seeking eating disorder treatment? There was no other male was talking about it. For right, wrong, or indifferent, I wanted a hero to look up to. I wanted to find somebody that has said, I've been through it. You know, recovery is possible, and this is what it looked like, and this is how it's affecting me, and this is where I'm at now. And at the same time, there was only one male speaking about it, and that was Brian Cuban, who has and is doing such amazing work in this field, especially with addictions. But I wasn't, at the end of the day, I wasn't 50 years old and I wasn't established an attorney. His brother's Mark Cuban. So there was mm-hmm. a lot of, well, it was a great message. I just, at the end of the day, I still couldn't relate. I mm-hmm. just lumped that in the category of that's not me. And when I go to these conferences as well, or anytime I speak, majority of it and the people in attendance are females. It's not something males talk about or resonate with because society has put this kind of flag and what's willpower and what's being tough and what is socially acceptable to talk about, but it makes it really, really difficult to find help, seek help, 
this whole concept of intuitive eating, it took me so long to dive into. And I know there's 10 steps and I was reading the 10 steps <laughs> recently <laughs> and it's all checking in with yourself. I felt like I was reading like be one with the universe and all yeah. this like <laughs> random things that just don't relate to me where I'm like, no, this basically just means like if you're hungry, eat. If not, dude, don't eat. Okay, cool. <laughs> move on. When it like, but again, you read these things and they're <laughs> for, right, longer and different for years. They've been, they've been written by women, um, <laughs> women addressed mm. to women. Mm. So <laughs> as a male, I'm looking for something that's, homies eat this don't eat that and instead i'm reading like something that's so i might as well pull out my journal and check my chakras and i just can't get behind it so i think there is a a huge uphill battle but a huge opportunity to kind of redirect the message to males in order to get people to realize it and also possibly more the more males that come out and start talking about the more studies we can get i think there's a lack of science behind males and eating disorders and what the effects are and um, not to say there isn't a tremendous amount of material out there anyways but it's hard to get the actual science behind it and the controlled studies to get proper data um well and now i'm glad you have mike marjama to be another male athlete voice so mike yeah we've become absolute tremendous friends his story if nobody knows about it it's different than mine i suffered from my eating disorder which was bulimia and binge eating in college and post-college and he suffered from more of an anorexia in high school and that the pressures involved in high school so he has a tremendous story for those that don't know he is he just retired from major league baseball but we actually went to the same high school oh wow yeah didn't know each other had no idea who mike was his story is a little different he was two years younger than me So he says he knew who I was. Uh, We had a giant high school, and I just didn't know very many sophomores when I was a senior. I call it eight months ago. One of my mentors reached out to me and was like, have you heard of Mike? And I was like, no, I have no idea who this Mike kid is. And long story short, yeah, same high school. What a small world. I don't know what that says about about our hometown, but his story, his personality, and everything about him, I would highly encourage people to go check him out because he is a powerful, powerful man, very authentic. His story is one that I think a lot of people can relate to. Patrick, could you share a bit more about the, your relationship with food and your body now? There's, there's been a lot of strides made in regards to that. I think on both aspects, it's important in my message when I know when I was trying to find somebody to relate to and kind of somebody to look up to, to know that I wasn't the only male in the world suffering from this. I really struggled finding that, it's, especially because I was at such extremes. I mean, I've had cases of when my mom had passed away I had about four was about four to five months of literally every single night four to five boxes of cereal so that included the milk that included these binges that were so gigantic I think a lot of times you just kind of hear people say like oh yeah I ate a tremendous amount of food when really it, it was a lot and it was purely emotionally driven ultimately a very very difficult thing for me because when I was trying to achieve high levels of physique that was probably the worst thing I could do to my body and mentally and now it's taken a lot of work, but being able to, one, redefine my relationships with food. I don't really try to make a focus and conscious effort to not demonize foods and not see things as good versus bad. Again, now realizing that cake is absolutely delicious and it's okay to have some and celebrate people's birthdays and, and not be the odd man out standing there saying, you know, I can't have this because it's bad for you in some way. The body's going to metabolize it no matter what it is. Being able to kind of find myself in positions now where 
there's balance. That also means if there's days that I don't make it to the gym, that's okay. And get back on track whenever you can and, and not beat yourself up for it. Post football, I found myself like, I really wanted this soccer physique, tall, lean, broad shoulders. And I'm a bigger guy. And so in order to achieve that physique and not understand my true set point, I lived for about seven years in a deficit and that was pure hell. That was literally the worst thing of all time where always grumpy, lack of energy, not eating enough, chewing gum, literally like a pack a day to avoid eating. I've had every flavored gum possible, trying to do all these hacks to not Mm. eat throughout the day. So to find myself in a relationship now where I can accept my body. And even that, that took during recovery. I really not trying to, I definitely don't step on scales anymore. I didn't look at a mirror because that could be really triggering. I couldn't like examine my body because that's all I had ever known. I would take the progress photos and all the above. Mm -hmm. So really trying to just know that it's more than just the image and, and finding a healthy balance between working out and food. It's definitely, it takes work, but it is achievable. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you've shifted from a major preoccupation where that was kind of all that was in your mind to having it have more of a rightful place in your life. Yeah, it's definitely a um, very relieving point in life as opposed to what it used to be where it was always making up for something. Thanks again to Patrick for joining us today. Make sure that you check in next week where Patrick will join us again to talk about identity issues within the athletic world. Thanks also to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Large Media. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Appetite on your favorite podcast app so you're up to date on any new episodes that we release. We also would so love it if you would review the podcast. If you'd like to stay in touch with Opal, you can find us on Instagram at Opal Food and Body, on Twitter, and on Facebook. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, you can also check out our website at opalfoodandbody.com for resources. Thanks, and talk to you next time. 